so I had to tell them for the first time that it was a murder. How emotional was that? Yeah, that was a that was a hard moment because um, you know it's one of those moments where you just feel like you're. I, I just punched two widows right in the gut. Um, and they were shocked. That was Jackson County Prosecutor Gene Peters Baker. Caught just minutes after convicted arsonist Tu Hong Nguyen was sentenced to 74 years in prison for starting a deadly nail salon fire on October 12, 2015. In the clip, Baker reflects back on the heartbreaking moment when she filed charges in the case. That image of the families of the fallen firefighters, already crestfallen, being confronted with the distinct possibility that the fire was caused by arson, obviously remains with Baker. She's not alone. The fire ultimately claimed the lives of KCFD firefighters John Mesh and Larry Leggio, while severely injuring Dan Werner and Chris Anderson. Wynn's September 21st sentencing hearing provided an opportunity for those most affected to testify in court about the repercussions of that fateful night, which has irrevocably altered the lives of countless Kansas City families. The legal process began in earnest two weeks after the deadly blaze, when Baker filed charges in Jackson County against Wynn, even while an ATF investigation remained in its infancy. To her, the decision was born out of instinct, but it didn't come without risk. The ATF had intended to file federal charges against Wynn, but only after the investigation was completed. Baker wasn't inclined to wait. Really, um, for me, it was uh, looking at her pattern of history. And in that moment, those early days, we didn't know everything yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but we knew enough uh, that this was a pattern and course of conduct. And um, it was simply too dangerous in my mind to allow her to remain out. At that point, did it feel like you were taking a risk moving ahead? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To be blunt, yeah. But that's what we do. Um, that's what we do. Now, I also believed I had, um, I had the evidence to go forward. What follows is an in-depth conversation with Jim Mesh, brother of John, conducted a few days after the sentencing hearing. We met at a bustling Northland coffee shop, so I hope you'll forgive the ancillary noises that come in and out of the recording. During our chat, he discusses the whirlwind bench trial, his own emotional testimony during the sentencing, the ongoing toll of losing a loved one, and much more. This is Paul Thompson, and you're listening to Kansas City's Northeast Newscast. Thanks for tuning in to the episode. Cool, so this is Paul Thompson here, sitting right across from Jim Mesh. Uh, we're probably, what, four or five days removed from the sentencing hearing for Tu Hong Nguyen. She was sentenced to 74 years, and they were consecutive sentences, at least for the the two second-degree murder charges and the assault charges, concurrent sentences for the arson cases, but I wanted to get your reaction when you saw that the sentences would be consecutive for the the murders and the assaults, so what was going through your head at that time, and what was your reaction? Uh, I was nervous that they weren't, they were going to, you know, stack them, you know, serving time for John and Larry at the same time, so to speak, as Mm -hmm. opposed to Hey, you you know, she killed two people. Uh, you need to serve time for, for my brother John, and she needs to serve time for, for Larry, mm-hmm. and she needs to serve time for, 
you know, the arson and then the, the assault on Dan Werner and the assault on Chris Anderson. I think they're all separate incidents, and, mm-hmm. and I'm really glad that it, it played out like it did. Were you surprised when that memorandum was issued to see that they had asked for 89 years and, and that they were kind of going for it that hard? Or is that what your expectation was based on your conversations with the prosecutors? That's what I was hoping for, and that's what I was sort of ex- expecting. I mean, uh, uh, the prosecutors really never told us. You know, my family sort of stayed out of it and let them do their their job. Uh, mm. But I knew that they were, you know, took this case personal, so to speak, and they were definitely wanting to seek justice. What was it like for, for you and the rest of the family to be in that courtroom, especially for the sentencing with just the mobs and the news media and all that stuff? Um, some of the faces I'm sure you have seen before, some people who just showed up for this one event and, and popped a camera in your face. I mean, internally, what's that conversation like in the family about who's going to talk, how you're going to handle this stuff? Um, well, since the beginning of this, for whatever reason, I guess I'm the most talkative out of my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brothers and sisters asked me if I would be, you know, for lack of a better word, the spokesman for our side, you mm-hmm. know, for the Mesh family. Uh, I'm not real comfortable talking in front of people, but unfortunately now between, you know, the interviews and then just, uh, starting the John B. Mesh Memorial Scholarship, I've, you know, the, the face of that with, along with John Cerner that, you know, now I've been in the, the public eye, so to speak, so I'm getting a little more comfortable so obviously you testified during that hearing and you had an opportunity to, to sit before not only the judge but in, in front of the defendant and, and talk from the heart. How difficult was that for you? I know you said you kind of become a little bit more comfortable with it, but there, I don't think there's any preparing for that kind of spotlight, is there? Uh, no. Uh, I probably went over uh, when uh, Teresa Crown uh, reached out to me uh, I told her I would do it, and uh, you know I prepared maybe a you know one paragraph little statement, and then uh, was actually uh, going to Colorado Springs for the firefighters memorial when they put uh, uh, Chief Tom Burns' name on the on the wall in Colorado Springs, mm-hmm. and I kept changing uh, changing it while we was, I was riding along with another fire firefighter, John Badami. And I kept just adding more and more. Mm-hmm. So when I finally submitted it to the prosecutor, you know, they said, hey, it's good. And so I read it, you know, to myself and to my kids and to everyone just, you know, yeah. in my family, I was reading it and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. I just kept wanting to add to it. Um, the only stipulation was they said that you, you know, being myself, that I couldn't uh, speak to the defendant. Right. Uh, I really don't have anything to say to her. I have yet to ever say her name, and I've yet to have anybody in my family ever say her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a lot of stuff that I would have wanted to s- said to her. Right. Uh, you know, there was uh, something said in court that it's uh, us against you. You know, I think the defense attorney said that. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it seems like you know there's a lot of tension in this courtroom. Right. Well, obviously, you yeah. know, you have the families of. Uh, two dead firefighters that were killed because somebody wanted an insurance check. Mm-hmm. You know, my brother and Larry, along with 108 other guys, you know, two of which got injured that night, were just doing their jobs. Right. You know, so yeah, when my brother's dead, yeah, I am going to have a little bit of uh, uh, of an attitude, you know, so to speak. I am going to be uh, have hard feelings toward the person that, that I honestly feel 
uh, this whole time was guilty of starting the fire. Mm-hmm. You know, just for greed. You know, and then you know you you speak about being in the courtroom being hard. Uh, you know, you were there in that courtroom. Sure. You seen how many times that, that she would turn around and smile and laugh and giggle. Mm-hmm. You know, and me and I'm sitting with my mom and my sisters and you know other firefighters. Uh, I've had so many firemen, my brother Mark included, apologize to me about my brother passing away, mm-hmm. like that somehow they thought it was their fault. You know, and then this person sits there laughing and giggling, and still to this day has never ever showed any signs of remorse. So, yeah, there is some animosity from my family, and I'm sure from the Leggio family as well. Well, and you bring up a good point. I mean, everyone, almost everyone in that courtroom felt at least partially accountable or responsible in some way, and it's something that all those guys lived with. You heard it in the statements from Chris and from Dan and from other firefighters who were present and who had testified during the trial. You know, everyone thinks they could have maybe done a little bit more here, or if only they had made this decision or that decision. I mean... The fire department put out a 71-page report where they took some responsibility there. And to everybody taking a little bit of responsibility besides the person who should be taking the most responsibility. And that's, um, I, can, I can totally see what you're saying. I, I will say that I, you mentioned seeing her in court smiling and, and how that, I can only imagine how much that makes your blood boil. I did see, and I don't know if you noticed this too, but it seemed like when she came in for the sentencing, she was um, a little more ashen. She was a little more beaten down. I didn't see that smile across her face there. I think perhaps she got to the point where it, it was all hitting her, how serious this thing was. Now, obviously, she wasn't prepared to speak to people. and maybe could have helped her case if she had and taken some responsibility. But what did you notice in the way she came to that courtroom versus what she was looking like when she was uh, sitting there? I've actually talked to people like that, and I, I think that after she was found guilty i think the real reality of the situation must have hit home because yeah i did physically see a difference in her appearance uh from you know i think she was in jail you know just throwing out an up two and a half years Mm -hmm. before the trial started and it was the same person that i had seen you know in the in the hearings when she was first arrested unnervingly loose right yeah and then uh Within, I don't know, you know, between the time she got uh, uh, found guilty to the sentencing, you know, maybe a couple months, it seemed like that physically uh, her appearance had deteriorated. So maybe it did hit home that, hey, I could be spending the rest of my life in jail. Did you, were you surprised to see her son brought to the stand during the sentencing hearing? No, not really. I think, uh, I think he was, uh, probably in a, in a hard spot you know that's his mother and obviously he loves her uh, I don't know if he was duped and believes that that you know she's uh, this innocent you know person but to me you know it was so many things they said that you know she was just you know couldn't read or write mm-hmm. uh, you know English couldn't speak English uh, she couldn't you know, read or write in Vietnamese mm-hmm. you know but then she had a driver's license here which to me, when you go take your license, you have to read and write in English to pass your driver's license. Right. Uh, she was smart enough to know that if she claimed uh, other forms of income, she'd lose her food stamps. Mm-hmm. You know, she was smart to figure that out. Uh, she was smart enough not to put her name under all these. Correct. Smart enough. Them. Yeah, smart enough to never file income taxes. You know, I mean, there's so much stuff that she done that was never even 
she was never in charge with, so to speak. But for them to say that she was just some, you know, dumb bumpkin, for a lack of a better word, to me just doesn't fly. Right. You know, she was smart enough to start how many fires. Sure. You know, she was smart enough to, you know, every time a, a house gets broke into or a car or whatever, claim all them insurance bills. Right. You know, so I, I just didn't buy into it. Right. It seems to me that there'd be a lot of people in this country who have a high school diploma who would have more difficulty than she does maneuvering the insurance system in this country. Absolutely. Um, did you ever get an explanation or from the judge about why she ultimately decided to rule that the defendant deserved to serve those consecutive sentences? No. Was there ever a moment where they pulled you aside? No, we have never. Uh, the first time I'd ever spoke to the judge was when I testified on uh, last Friday. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe anybody in my family has ever spoken to the judge or uh, we've never had uh, the prosecutors never said hey this is why the judge did what she did so I have no idea hopefully she uh, I would imagine that she just you know she saw it like we saw it and hey this person did this and this is the appropriate punishment I know it's it must feel like it's been ages since October 12 2015 and I know we're obviously coming up on that three-year anniversary now how important was it for you to get that sense of justice? And can you describe how it made the family feel? Uh, we're just glad that somebody's being held accountable. You know, it was the weirdest thing that when that when it first happened that night when we were at the hospital, uh, it never dawned on me that that was an arson fire or anything like that. And uh, my mother was the last one. Uh, they sent the chief's buggy to pick my mom up. And uh, when she came in, uh, I know me and my brother Mark and I think one of my sisters or maybe two of my sisters that night was sort of hectic, obviously, were in there. And my mom walked up, you know, we were in there with John's body. And my mom walked in. That's the first thing she said. She goes, I pray that this wasn't an arson. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had I hadn't thought had never crossed my mind. And then when she said it, I sort of just... You know, I heard it, but I didn't really ponder it. Or And then, you know, in the, a couple of weeks after it, it, you know, it came out that, hey, this was an arson. So, I mean, it was bad enough that my brother had been killed in a fire. And then to find out that the reason that, you know, he did it could have totally unnecessary. Right. You and know. You mentioned a couple of weeks later it comes out that it's an arson. That's when essentially the prosecutor, Gene Peters Baker, files the charges, right? Correct. That's within two weeks. And I had a chance to talk to her after the sentencing hearing where she kind of acknowledged that that was a gamble on her part. You know, she saw the facts, was aware of the previous fire in Lee's Summit that ended up becoming a focal point of the trial, and she went with her gut and decided to file those charges in Jackson County ostensibly against the wishes of the ATF, who at the time were hoping that federal prosecutors would be able to charge the case and take her to trial. Of course, that kind of got the ball moving faster. She filed those charges before the ATF investigation was done. Ultimately, it corroborated what she was feeling at the time, and her gut instinct was proven correct. How thankful are you in retrospect? Uh, I'm glad that she she did it. Three years has been long enough, you know, uh, and obviously the ATF, uh, you know, did their investigation and they they were uh, crucial in, in this guilty verdict and this, that, and the other. So 
it was a team effort with everybody, but I, I couldn't be more thankful for the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office and the, the ATF. Yeah. And you mentioned the ATF. I, I want to harken back to the bench trial from this July as well, because so much of the testimony revolved around the ATF and their investigation. To me, one of the key inflection points of the trial was when they talked about the financials. How much did you know ahead of time about what was going to be revealed? And what was your reaction sitting there in the audience and watching prosecutors go over the financial history of this of this woman who had established such a familiar pattern? Uh, we knew that she had done uh, a couple of things before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never really looked into all the specifics of her total history, mm-hmm. but I, but I knew that she was involved in some other stuff that they you know some other arsons and this that and the other. I didn't know the extent of, you know, the monetary, what she had got out of it, this, that, and the other. Right. Uh, no, I really wasn't concerned with that. I just, you know, uh, from the beginning, whenever they uh, told us, you know, just a few details, it, it was apparent to me that this person was a, a habitual arsonist. Right. And ultimately, I think the numbers that were were calculated, it was in page-taking detail. You looked at... 16 incidents, I believe, over a seven-year period, yeah. resulting in $268,000 in claims, not all of which are going directly to her. It's, it's people that she's convinced to put their names onto something, so essentially turned them into accessories. Now, I don't think they were all charged in the fact. I'm not sure they really understood the scope of it. Ultimately, the, the owner of the property on Independence Avenue served as a witness rather than um, a defendant in that case, but right. just sitting there and hearing the full scope of it... Was that a difficult thing to do that day, or, or was it something that actually gave you hope that you would get the justice? Uh, well, I mean, it just proved what kind of a person she was. Just, you know, like you just said, she would constantly put stuff in, in other people's names. Just like uh, they had a deal at the trial that she changed. Uh, she was living in her brother's house, I believe, and she changed. Uh, she called the insurance or whoever and made herself the head of the household. Right. And then that house... You know, uh, I don't know. Remember the exact time frame. End up uh, catching fire, and she was the one that, that got the insurance check, basically leaving her own brother with a burned-up house. Right. And then she, they said that later on, she asked him to open the salon in her name, mm-hmm. and the guy knew better by that. Yeah, he did. He he refused to do it, and uh, they said in court that they hadn't talked for years because of it, mm-hmm. and the guy ended up being a. Uh, making a statement for the, the prosecutors made a statement about against his own sister mm-hmm. so to me that tells you what kind of person she is right. you know she doesn't care about anybody but herself what's if you don't mind maybe taking me into the fi- the family dynamic during the trial so this bombshell day of testimony come where the forensic investigator lays out in painstaking detail all of these prior allegations all of the insurance payments uh, paints a pretty clear picture, I think, and to me, it was one of the most damning moments of the trial. What's that conversation like that day as you're walking out of the courtroom, uh, or as you all get together for dinner that night, maybe? Oh, I mean, it was hard to relive it. Uh, you know, like I said, to to see, you know, guys like Steve Davis and Dan Up and uh, you know, Dan Werner and. and Chris Anderson have to relive that stuff, you know. I mean, there were a lot of guys there that night that, like I told said before, that were so apologetic of what happened, you know. And it's just, uh, 
to see my my brothers and sisters and my mom and my nieces uh, you know have to relive that and to hear about you know what happened to my brother and, and Larry you know uh, you know just like Missy said at the sentencing you know uh, uh, I thank God that I have no doubt in my mind that neither one of them suffered mm-hmm. but then when you look at uh, I know the injuries that both of them sustained. To know that they had to go through that is just a hard pill to swallow. You know, it's, I don't know if it makes sense, but like I said, it's good is not the right word. I'm just, or happy, but I'm glad they didn't suffer. But then on the other side of it, to know what they, you know, what their physical injuries were is, it's hard to, Yeah, it's just hard to know that my brother had to to endure that, you know. Sure. As you were sitting through the trial that week, I mean, it was somewhat grueling in terms of the amount of hard evidence that was presented, the amount of circumstantial evidence, the amount of uh, just data that was discussed, the... When they, when you look look at the ATF and the amount of man hours they put into recreating the scene, um, that was overwhelming too. Just to try to keep up with the facts that were coming out. Was there a moment in the trial that you can point to where the family got together amongst yourselves and said, "I think we have it." So I think that was the piece of evidence that put us over the top. Uh, not really. I mean, I think we pretty much had faith in, in the system, so to speak. I know I had uh, made a comment to Teresa that, you know, the first couple of days they were just like, you know, just letting the, the defense, you know, do their part and really not, you know, rebuttaling or, and I think that's partially because of it was a, you know, they didn't, it was not a jury trial, so you, you can't, mm-hmm. you know, be argumentative or, you know, right. object or anything like that, so mm-hmm. speaking. I'm no legal expert by any means, but when the time came, it was like they they flipped a switch and they you know they definitely got their point across and they definitely got their facts out there and they explained everything uh, from the prosecutors to the ATF to the you know the, the electrical experts to the you know uh, Ryan Zorns with the you know the how the fire traveled and it, I mean mm-hmm. but they explained it in layman's terms that that anybody could understand hey this is exactly what happened they, you know and they said no the you know the, the the wiring ran through the floor they had pictures of it where it ran they're saying that's why you know the, the big contention the whole trial was oh the sign was the last thing to go out and they proved without a shadow of doubt why that happened and why that was you know and i think that was one of the the defenses you know oh, this is going to prove her innocence because of this sign, and that just got shot out of the water. You Absolutely. Know? Same with, you know, uh, they kept saying, well, the fireman poked a hole in the wall between the African store and the nail salon, and he seen fire uh, in the wall. Mm-hmm. No, he, he didn't just poke a hole in the void space between. He poked a hole. When he poked the hole in the wall, he was looking into the nail salon mm-hmm. where he saw the fire was in the nail salon. It wasn't in the void space in the wall. Right. I mean, he didn't just like you know poke a little hole in the wall. He chopped a hole in the wall where he could see through. Right. You know, and she kept trying to make it seem like that the fire department never saw a fire and this, that, and the other, which was you know totally false. Right. Well, and I think the key moment to me that was the other one that that really stood out to me. The first one 
was the forensic investigator and detailing all of those prior fires and insurance claims uh, was really striking. The last one was in the last day. It was the, the last moments, essentially. I mean, you're at the two-yard line, essentially, of, of that trial, and the, the prosecution essentially figures it out, right? I, I, at least that's the way I saw it, with exactly what you mentioned about the sign. I mean, the, the, the most convincing or the most reasonable argument I thought made by the defense throughout the entire trial was that nobody could explain precisely why this sign was the last to go out, right? I, and there wasn't a really, I guess, I, I didn't hear an answer from the prosecution that was definitive until that very last day, and yeah. they went back to that I expert. think they had to re, re-look at it. Yeah. And, and I, another thing that was pretty relevant to me was that she kept harping on uh, Botran uh, failed all these inspections. The building mm-hmm. failed, I think it was 10 out of 15 years or 10 out of 15 inspections. Right. But that may have been, uh, hey, your exit sign has a light bulb missing right. or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the last day, I think uh, Chief Jimmy Walker, the Kansas City uh, Fire Marshal, mm-hmm. uh, he came in and said, you know, with his record, just said, he's never failed anything. Right. You know? Of, of substance, right? Yeah. I mean, anything that... He didn't have a failure. He may have had a couple things, like I said, a burnout light bulb or or a fire extinguisher that might have needed to be inspected or something like that. But as far as actually uh, failing an inspection, that never happened. And he was there to prove that. I think he was another, you know, last minute, uh, you know, uh, savior that, that he came in his testimony. And I'm looking at the stuff I did. It was that Friday, July 20th. Um, I'm just kind of can I go over that last day that that last bit of evidence because initially the prosecution had argued that a sheetrock wall that protected the panel box along the north wall of the nail salon served as a temporary shield from the flames. Now, it was somewhat convincing, but it wasn't really the, a home run. I don't think that argument. There was a little bit of doubt. I think that could have been created there. Right. But then when you get back to it and you realize that there was. The, the electric, you can see on those photos where they, they zoomed in, right? They kept enhancing, enhancing, and you get the zoom shot of, of the open sign and you see the wire coming down. It's not even attached to that. So it, it doesn't really matter what was going on in that circuit box. Right. Even if it is reasonable to expect that it could have served as a temporary shield, the bottom line is that it was attached to a separate outlet. Yeah, it was plugged in the floor. I haven't heard the judge say it, but I did talk to the prosecutors after that day and they were kind of beside themselves. They, they had mentioned to me that this is something, because what happened was they, the defense brought, remember they brought in, I think it was Kramer, their electrical expert, and he said all this stuff in the last day. He threw a bunch of stuff at him about how, well, it's not possible that it could have protected it or everything would have gone at the same time. They kind of doubled down on this theory that the open sign was going to save them. Right. And that's when... The, the prosecution brought their own expert back, and they were able to, over the lunch break that day, was what they told me, over the lunch break that, break that day, they went back over and looked through all the pictures, and that's when they saw evidence, essentially, that broke the case open for the prosecution. It was, um, it's almost like something that you would see in a TV show, like a Law & Order episode or something. I, I guess I would ask, well, you guys walk out on that Friday, you don't have a sentence, you have to wait a couple of months for it, but do you feel confident that oh, you were going to get what, what you wanted out of that, having okay. having heard that last bit of defense? Yeah, like you said, the first couple of days, I, I wouldn't say my family was questioning or doubting anything. 
but the last couple of days, like I said, that's when the prosecutors uh, turned up the heat, so to speak, and sure. and started, you know, uh, you know, doing what they do, I guess. But, right. Yeah, that's uh, when I left there on that Friday. I was pretty confident that that uh, they had proven their case and that everything they said happened had happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I uh, know nothing about electrical or fire or this, that, and the other, and. Uh, they laid it out there where even someone like like me understood exactly, you know, what they were saying, and they, you know, took you from, you know, A, B, C, and, uh, you know, explained it step by step what happened. Right. Well, and I know moving forward, you're going to stay involved. We, we talked before we started here that you'll continue to attend the, the annual memorial for fallen firefighters. Absolutely. Uh, that was held at the Firefighters Fountain off of, I think, 31st, 31st and Broadway. Broadway. Yeah. Yes. Um, also, you still have the, the shoot, the annual clay shoot. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that and how you hope to, to keep that going over the years? Uh, well, the, the first off, the firefighter memorial, uh, you know, I think it's... Uh, you know, obviously, you know, I have uh, brothers and cousins and uncles and guys I grew up with. My neighbors uh, growing up were all firefighters. Uh, and so I've known a lot of firefighters over my life. And then, you know, now having Mark and John and my nephew Michael just got on on September 11th. He just got on Kansas City Fire Department. So uh, obviously I'm close with the Kansas City Fire Department. And, but I think that... Uh, you know, knowing the history and, and, and paying, you know, respects to the people that uh, uh, have passed in the line of duty before, you know, before John and Larry. Uh, I had some fr- uh, friends that, that passed away in the, in the explosion out there, uh, you know, in 98. Uh, so I just, I will always go up there to, uh, you know, pay my respects to the guys, uh, Cerna, you know, John Cerna. His grandfather died in a fire. He was a Kansas City firefighter. And Jimmy Walker's dad. Too. Yeah, Jimmy Walker, Chief Walker. You know, so there's a lot of guys on that job that that's uh, you know my family and the Leggio family. We aren't the only ones that's uh, you know suffered, and uh, we think it's you know it's the right thing to do for us to give back uh, to the to the community and to the fire department for all the stuff they've done for. You know, I know for sure for my family, I don't want to speak for them, but I'm pretty sure they feel the same way that, you know, the fire department has been there uh, for us and with us uh, since uh, October 12, 2015. Uh, and then for the shoot, uh, we do the John B. Mesh Memorial Scholarship, which is a conservation-based scholarship, uh, which provides uh, scholarships to kids. And uh, we sponsored a few camps. We do the Discover Nature Girls Camps with the Missouri Department of Conservation in my brother's name. And we've done a couple of bow hunting camps, uh, one in Fort Scott and one in Montana for kids to learn about archery hunting and this, that, and the other mm-hmm. and in hopes of uh, getting kids in the outdoors. You know, my family, we grew up in the outdoors. We're a big outdoor family. Uh, my brother's kids, he was he had them in outdoors. And uh, as you know, he has four daughters, sure. you know, girly girls, just like my daughters. And they all enjoyed hunting fish. You know, right. they, they like it. So... We think that's uh, a good way to, to keep John's memory and legacy alive is, uh, you know, our ultimate goal, me and John Cerna, is to uh, get with the conservation, Missouri Department of Conservation, and uh, hopefully we can get a, a chunk of land, and we'd love to, to be able to build uh, with the, some of the proceeds we raised from the scholarship, a uh, John Mesh 
uh, archery range. Oh, you know, cool. Some uh, an archery range somewhere that's you know dedicated to my brother. I mean, you know, uh, that's one of our goals, and uh, you know, so yeah, we plan on doing that uh, this year. We just had the third annual, and uh, every year it keeps getting bigger and better. Uh, you know, I've, now I've had uh, I've had a couple girls call me. Uh, and they want to get a team and an all-woman team, you know, and say, hey, is that possible? Absolutely. It's the spirit of the idea, yeah. huh? Yeah, That'd we had cool. a, Yeah, so we just hope it keeps getting bigger and better and just to, to keep John's memory alive, you know, that's that's my ultimate goal is I don't want anybody to forget, forget my brother. Sure. No, that's, um, no, it's very noble, and I, it's, it's awesome to see it every year. I, I will ask briefly, because I didn't ask about this earlier, uh, you mentioned the family. You know, some of the... Thought the most emotional testimony during the sentencing hearing was uh, provided by Alyssa, and it was the, the letter that she read from her sister. How hard was that to hear? It was real hard, you know. I mean, I know, uh, you know, I lost my brother. You know, my mom lost her son. You know, Felicia lost her husband, but uh, my niece has lost her dad. You know. Uh, uh, we actually had a surprise 50th birthday party. It was in the letter that she read mm-hmm. on the Saturday before. We had a, they had a surprise 50th party for me, mm-hmm. and uh, they told me that none of my brothers and sisters were going to be able to make it. Mm-hmm. When I showed up, they were all there, and uh, we spent that Saturday night, you know, uh, into Sunday morning past midnight. Uh, John was there with his family, you know, my family, my sisters, brothers, and mm-hmm. you know, 50 or 60 friends were there. So we all got to spend that time together, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it was, it was, a, you know, nobody, obviously nobody knew that was the last time you'd ever see John. And that's the last thing he said to me was, hey, I got to get the girls home and get them to bed because I got to be stationed in the morning. Hmm. So he worked on Sunday. And then when, you know, the guys he worked with left Monday morning, he stayed and was trading time so we can go on a hunting trip. Mm-hmm. So that's why he was there. But, uh, you know, I had uh, talked to him in, even that night, you know, about how happy he was that Adriana was going to graduate high school. She was getting ready to graduate. Uh, mm-hmm. That morning, my daughter, Heather, uh, sent me a picture. She was getting ready to get married. Mm-hmm. And she sent me pictures of uh, her in her wedding dress. And I was working, and I ended up sending them to uh, When I got off work, I sent them to my, my brothers, Mike, Mark, and John. And uh, that night at that party... My brother John, I was talking to my daughter Heather, my brother John came up and told my daughter, he goes, hey, I just want to tell you, you look beautiful in your wedding dress. And she, my daughter looked at me, she was, Dad, why'd you show him? Mm-hmm. I wanted him to have to wait till my wedding day to see me in my wedding dress. Mm-hmm. So in hindsight, now she's thankful that her uncle got to see her. Right. Uh, and that same daughter took Adriana's senior pictures. And uh, Adriana made a post that night that... Uh, or that Monday morning, you know, she posted her senior pictures on Facebook or some social media, mm-hmm. and she made the comment, I can't wait till my dad, because my brother didn't have any social media, so there's no way for him yeah, to see they, it. Yeah, they could talk openly. Yeah, uh, and she posted, uh, I can't wait for my daddy to get home and see my senior pictures, and then her next post on there was, my daddy never came home. Jeez. So, you know, just, so, yeah, I, I've known, you know, obviously I know what they've been through, but... Uh, you know, I just, I don't know. I just, it's, obviously it's hard, you know. Uh, 
we're recognizing that deep bond that you and your family have with the fire department have had, uh, and obviously the tragedy that you've had to live through. Was it all bittersweet seeing your nephew sign up and join? Yeah, I think he actually, uh, he had talked to my brother John and my brother Mark prior to this happening. He had expressed some interest in, in getting on the fire department, but just circumstances or the timing, whatever, wasn't ever, you know. And then once my brother John passed and uh, my brother Mark retired, uh, you know, on Christmas Day, my brother Mark ended up retiring out mm -hmm. of uh, uh, John's spot. On, he ended up, my brother was at the academy, mm -hmm. and he ended up going to work uh, Pumper 10 on Christmas Day and retired out of John's spot on Pumper 10. Mm -hmm. And uh, he really was hesitant on doing that because uh, him and John had talked about a mesh being on the fire department until my nephew Michael got on. Right. So Mark almost didn't retire, mm. you know. So after that, I think uh, uh, my nephew and my son-in-law, Nick, uh, you know, he's you know, he's on the list now. Hopefully he gets on pretty soon. You know, it sort of re-energized their efforts on wanting to get on the fire department. And to you, that's a um, point of pride? Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't be prouder of them uh, if they get on it. I mean, obviously it would be nerve-wracking for my daughter and, and, you know, I mean, for me and my brothers, you know, for my, my nephew Michael and his, you know, he just had a... A son, uh, Victor John, mm -hmm. you know, sort of a <laughs> twist on John Victor. Sure. But uh, uh, obviously there would be some nerves, but, you know, that's what I told my daughter. I says, uh, you know, you have a chance of something happening just crossing the street. I says, but to me, the chance of something happening to another mesh on the fire department, now that this has happened, I just, I don't know. I don't, right. you know, I know there's no, you know, magic right. you know solution but it would just to me it seems really highly unlikely that we would suffer another loss in our family which you know I don't know if that sounds right or not but you know. wait against the likelihood that you could help people right yeah so awesome I'll turn this thing off for now once again that was Jim Mesh reflecting on the trial and sentencing of convicted arsonist to Hong Win, whose actions led to grave repercussions for the Mesh family, along with the Legios, Andersons, Werners, and everybody else who found themselves affected by that fire on October 12th, 2015. I'd like to thank Jim for taking the time to rip open some old wounds, talk about deeply personal and deeply emotional moments in his life. As always, this is Paul Thompson, signing out. Thanks for listening.